What is Coursera? We want to make sure that developers can solve their own problems as much as possible. In the past, the biggest dependency management choices we've made were to even get to a point where we could make dependency management choices. So once we made choices like moving to React and moving to Webpack, we got the ability to use those third-party dependencies. So nowadays, yeah, we do make a lot of decisions as to, you know, are we using React 16? How are we dealing with deprecation errors? Are we using this other third-party library? Is it compatible? And we make a lot of those choices and make sure that we have the right amount of libraries and modules for our developers. Hey, this is Brian, and you're listening to Jamstack Radio, a bi-weekly series where we discuss the Jamstack, a new way of building websites and apps that are fast, secure, and simple to work with. Jamstack Radio is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, find us on Twitter at Jamstack Radio. So welcome to another installment of Jamstack Radio. In the house, we've got John Wong. Hello. So John, who are you and what do you do? Yeah, so I'm a senior software engineer at Coursera. I work on the front-end infrastructure team. And uh, it's uh, three of us, uh, Lewis and Gagarin and my team. And we work on the sort of workflows, tools, processes that our front-end developers use at Coursera to, to build Coursera. What is Coursera? Yeah, so uh, for those of you who haven't heard of Coursera, Coursera is an education platform. We partner with universities and industries uh, all over the world. Um, in fact, we have over 150 partners, and they host uh, courses on our platform. We have 2,500 courses from math to history to biology to, you know, most recently a Google IT cert. So you know, it's it's a platform for people to learn and to to enrich their lives and transform their lives. So Coursera itself, it's. You guys have partnerships through the colleges, but are you? Do you have to be enrolled in the colleges to start like these courses? Like, who's paying money? Where's the money being thrown around? We definitely partner with these universities. Uh, you don't have to be enrolled in those universities uh, at all, and that's really great. Um, you know, seventy percent of our learners are from not here in the United States, so that's really great. That means that they can get that kind of classwork from those those schools. Uh, and then you can pay for it in a different, a few different ways. Uh, right now, we have a subscription, so you can pay a certain amount a month, and you can have as much access to the different courses that you need. And we try and group them up to sort of denote the sort of things that you're learning. So you could take one course, or you could take a group of courses, which is a specialization, and that will come with, sometimes comes with a, a project that you can apply your skills with. And even those specializations can add up to, uh, a group of specializations can add up to something like a degree. You can yeah. get an, an undergrad degree in CS, you can get a master's in business administration, an MBA. You can get as I mentioned before, a certification from Google to work in their IT department. And all of that you can do without being enrolled with the university. The degree ones you do need to, it is a lot higher touch. You do end up interfacing a lot with those universities. But for the most part, you can do a lot of this from the comfort of your home. Oh, interesting. So as far as cost-wise, am I paying more or less than if I were to go to like a university directly? Yeah, so the things that you're paying for at a university are not just the education part. You know, yeah. there's a lot of other things that are going on there. Uh, so one, you know, we you can pay a lot less. Uh, it's a lot more flexible. Of course, you you can do it on your phone or on your computer. And in comparison to other online degrees, you know, a lot of cost is is acquiring you, marketing to you. Okay. But the thing is, you shouldn't have to pay to acquire yourself. Turns out that a lot of Coursera learners want to get those kinds of degrees and want to get those kinds of certificates. So we want to try and get folks to to use Coursera for the little things and then show them that it can add up to the big things. Awesome. I need to uh, thumb through some of those courses to see if there's anything I can uh, I can learn from it. 
But moving off of, uh, we'll still talk about Coursera, but I want to talk about your your role as like on front end infrastructure. Because when I think infrastructure, I think like Docker containers and like scripts to deploy my my projects. So what is front end infrastructure at Coursera? Yeah. So. Um, the way that I define front-end infrastructure is, is again, the, the workflows, tools, and processes that help front-end developers do their jobs. And that can start with things like scripts that you run um, on your computer. It could be your Babel setup. It could be your Webpack setup. It could be how you, uh, you know, how your editor works. But it goes even as far as how we bundle your application, how we deploy your application. And even high level things like uh, what technologies do we use? Like, do we use React? Do we use this version, that version? Are we using things like GraphQL? And that spawned off of the realization as we're building these really big single page applications that it wasn't scalable to have product teams solve all their problems. We needed a few folks to kind of like really spend their full time job making sure that we were making the right decisions there. Yeah, that's a big point you make at the end of that. Like, the product teams. Like are very like I came from product. I actually worked on the Netlify app for a while, and I was very knee deep in shipping features and making sure the app worked all the time. I wasn't really considering like whether I need to update my React to sixteen or I need to re- update all these other dependencies. So, do you guys handle the dependency management as well as part of that infrastructure play? Yeah, I think. Well, in the past, the the biggest dependency management choices we've made were to even get to a point where we could make dependency management choices. Okay. So in the past we used backbone, we used those, those sort of things and and the ecosystem didn't really evolve that much. But once we made choices like moving to React and moving to Webpack, then we started having to we got the ability to use those third-party dependencies. So nowadays, yeah, we do make a lot of decisions as to, you know, are we using React 16? How are we dealing with deprecation errors? Are we using uh, this other third-party library? Is it compatible? And we make a lot of those choices and make sure that we have the right amount of libraries and modules for our developers. Cool. So it's almost like you're, are you not attached to certain projects within Corsair? You're kind of attached to the front-end ecosystem. So are you coming in to a team who maybe is going to take a, a new project on or a new new system, or are you guys are going to start playing with Vue? Are you guys the one that basically you're taking the time to see if this is going to work? It's almost like, I guess what I'm getting at, it's like almost like your internal contractors, where you're not attached to a project, but you come in to provide feedback and support. Is that how it kind of set up? Yeah, that's a pretty good way of talking about it. In the past, what we've done is that we'd find, again, we serve our product developers, and so we want to make sure that whatever we're working on feeds the product being made. And so they'll come with some requirements in the past, our switch to React was necessitated because we had a really interactive application. In this case, was you know creating courses on Coursera that needed something that could do the data binding and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. So the team didn't exist at that time, but you had there was a few folks that knew a lot about this. I uh, really liked this kind of work, and so that was maybe the first time that we started seeing that we needed people to to jump in and be like the the special ops team and and, and really get in there. And then, yeah, today it's the same thing for things like GraphQL, where we have problems that the product developers are raising to us. We sit them with them, we work with them, we integrate with their team, we get a solution working, make sure that they understand it, and then we figure out how we handle the infra, handling, um, keeping it up and running, keeping up the maintenance and that sort of stuff, and then continue to make sure that product developers that it's useful for product developers. Cool. Yeah, and you mentioned GraphQL a couple times too, as well. And uh, the listeners know after listening to so many episodes, I'm a big fan of GraphQL. Do you guys, you guys using GraphQL in production at the moment? Yeah, we use GraphQL almost on every page, maybe smaller pieces. Uh, we do a piecemeal approach to it. We used a sort of homegrown version of 
a very similar thing that, uh, where we could do field selection and, and that sort of stuff, but it wasn't nearly as advanced as GraphQL. Um, and we experimented with a couple of applications as a whole, switching over to GraphQL, and now we have the ability to just drop it in anywhere on a page. Ooh. So we're still working out the kinks, but it's certainly a, a big piece of our infrastructure. So taking on something like GraphQL, who handles the education of these sort of sw- switches and decisions that are made? Like, If you're going to use GraphQL on a different page, are you guys also in charge of educating the rest of the front-end team to get them up to speed on whatever the new, newest and greatest thing is? Yeah, so because we have a little more time and because we're separate from the product teams like you mentioned, we do have a lot of time to explore and figure out all the bumps along the road before we get to the point where we say, okay, this is shippable or this is something that you can use. And so we generate then a document that tries to highlight what is specific about GraphQL that's maybe difficult to use at a place like Coursera, but not the technology itself. And yeah. so we try and outsource all of that to to the ecosystem. We have uh, what I like to call we want to make sure that we have the have Google ability. We want to make sure that developers can solve their own problems as much as possible. And so we try and make sure that, you know, if there's a solution out there that we're not trying to like hack it and make it our own all the time. Sometimes you need to, but ultimately we want to make it something that's available outside. We'll follow that up with in-person workshops where we'll go through and do some introductory projects. We'll make sure we'll have uh, things like working groups where we introduce at a high level certain constructs and things coming down the line for GraphQL development. And we use code review as a really great way of disseminating a lot of that information. In the future, I think we're going to steal some ideas from you and, and actually have people write some GraphQL from scratch. Okay, um, cool. Do the whole integration and, and do the whole process that we did to learn how to use GraphQL. Awesome. The, the Google ability, that, that term, uh, being able to have the developers solve their own problems, was that part of the reason why you guys switched over to GraphQL as opposed to doing your own homegrown thing? Yeah, absolutely. I think what we found with our caching client at the time, and the caching client, and it's called NaptimeJS, which is just an interface to a lightweight REST uh, framework. Oh, um, yeah, I, the listeners are going to miss the joke, but yeah, that, that's actually a, a clever name. <laughs> yes, but what a big thing was maintaining our own caching client. We realized was not one of the things that we really, really, really cared about. The technology around the API was really important, but like having to maintain a JavaScript client for that for just ourselves didn't make a ton of sense. And so when we saw something like GraphQL and and we used and I think the big tool that I that blew my mind was graphical, which was the the graphical interface for GraphQL. And a big piece of that was being able to explore our entire API ecosystem. We have, you know, something like 700 different API endpoints that are in REST, and now they're all available in one place uh, via graphical. And that was just mind-blowing to me and and something that we just couldn't wasn't able to do before. Uh, how big is Coursera as far as like people wise? Yeah, so we're about uh, I think 275 full time. Our engineering team is probably around 80 people, okay. and our front end team is probably around 30. We also support um, some of the mobile teams that are using React Native, so I would say we probably support around 30 people on the front end side. Uh, of course, the back end developers are also using and utilizing those APIs, and of course they they are um, helping uh, provide the data for the GraphQL parts too. Yeah, you guys must be a pretty popular team in Hack Day projects. Uh, when you guys have Hack Days, you know, a lot of people trying to get the infrastructure team to uh, take a look at their code. Yeah, I think I think a lot of it is is the deep understanding of things like Webpack and and, and that whole technology stack. There's so many advanced configurations and things that you can do with it that yeah. we don't do on a normal day to day basis. But yeah, during a Hack Day, you're like, I want to make this thing 20 times faster. It's like, yeah, I have a solution for you, but it's going to take some work. 
Yeah, I'm actually working on a blog post right now that's not going to be, it'll probably be out way before this this podcast because I basically have it written. I'm just getting other people to read it. And uh, it's basically comparing all the build tools together. So, like Browser 5, and went back to that, Gulp, Webpack. I also used Rollup for the first time to test it out. And basically, because um, I forget the, the Preact uh, creator, Jason Miller. Yeah, so he came out with Micro Bundle, which is built on Rollup. So, I'm like, I basically rebuilt the same app on using all these different. Tools and I was like, oh wow, I could see where the ecosystem because like I didn't really get in the front end development until Webpack was just coming out, so like before even 1.0, and then basically React is what got me to use it more. So I didn't really have the experience of all these other tools outside of Webpack, so I didn't have all the weight and problems that came up to it. So I definitely appreciate like communities and like what you were talking about, like picking tools that are Googleable, so that way people can solve their own problems. Like Webpack literally. Pushed off their 2.0 release a couple years ago because the documentation wasn't ready, and I think that was a, a really good move because once the documentation was there and they shipped it, uh, it was much easier to tell the rest of the team to say, "Okay, Webpack is the way to go." Here in the documentation, check this out. Code splitting, uh, it kind of it hurts to do, but eventually it'll get better, and it, it's gotten better. And uh, I think it's a uh, yeah, just kind of uh, Pushing on along your, your some of the things that you've been echoing, and I'm just trying to echo those things as well. Yeah, I think I think the Webpack community, especially um, Sean Larkin and then Tobias Coppers, like they they've done an incredible job over the last couple of years. Um, because I do remember right when Webpack came out for the first time, um, we evaluated and we said it's too complex. We can't do this without documentation. We can't do this without support. In fact, like four years ago, I when we were doing this evaluation, we made the decision for me to write our own version of it. Uh, at Coursera, and so right now I'm dealing with getting off of that legacy like piece of technology. And to your point about like the ecosystem, like it's evolved so much in the last two years that it can also get a little overwhelming. And that's where the front end infrastructure team is hopefully intended to sort of shape how we interact with the ecosystem and how we take things on and and not take things on. Yeah, and I, I think uh, evolves an interesting word. I also think it's like it matured as well. Because uh, even a couple of years ago, I think, uh, and I think I would have loved to have someone like you on my team a couple of years ago during the whole JavaScript fatigue that was going around all that time. Because it seemed like every couple of months something new was coming out, whether or not they were valid or whether or not we still even look at them nowadays. Like you didn't know what was going to be legit. So you had to try everything or you had to just give up and not do anything. But I feel like now with uh, some of these other tools like Vue and React and even Angular is still around with um, its like multi levels and versions, I think. We've learned from that that phase, so now we have more maturity when it comes to choosing and building our mm-hmm. frameworks, and also building them to last. I don't think React would have been just as big if we didn't have not just Facebook, but also other large companies backing it. And I don't think Webpack would have been just as big, or would have lasted as long, even though other things were coming up during that time, if other people did not throw their money in front of it and say, "This is what we're gonna we're gonna use for a while." And uh, I think that's helping, and I think. It's making it easier, and I think it's making it easier for like individuals like yourself to actually be that infrastructure like maintainer of the front end because it's 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 been like that for years. Like we have infrastructure leads like at Netlify as well, but handle mainly our back end. Front end is basically all managed by the front end, and I we're we're much smaller, so obviously we're not going to hire one person to do our webpack builds. But someday I think we could, we would probably mirror the same sort of hiring architecture inside of companies. I think a lot of companies probably be. Interested to know this too. Yeah, you'd be surprised. I mean, uh, a lot of companies already have this role. Um, Pinterest, Facebook, they have different names: web infrastructure, presentation infrastructure, pl- platform UI, platform infrastructure. 
But some of these big companies do have literally have one person whose job is to manage their Webpack builds, which might be a little much. But um, in, and you know, I think it speaks to where you know we could have some development in that in, in that particular part of the area. But you know, when you make these big applications, it does take a little bit of work to manage it all. Yeah, and I think it's just a, again just a front end infrastructure that's maturing to the fact that we are now realizing we need to actually pay attention to what we're throwing on the front end code. Like now, I'm really glad that testing is more of like more in vogue of in the JavaScript realm because a couple years ago you just wrote JavaScript and it just worked and it didn't matter if you had like weird Jade templates or if you did CoffeeScript or you did regular JavaScript, it'll just work forever. Eventually, we found that that wasn't the case. But um, yeah, I think this the I guess I, the negligence I guess of the way we wrote front end code. I'm appreciative of that, that we actually are we have some structures and infrastructure basically mm-hmm. in the way we we do code. Yeah, I think that makes a ton of sense. We never really needed complex applications in JavaScript, so we never really needed the tooling around it. But now that we do, what's interesting is that as you mentioned before with backend infrastructure, it's the same ideas, right? And and I'm finding as I'm working like the front end infrastructure team is. Alongside the backend infrastructure team at Coursera, and we share a lot of ideas, and we'll say something like, "Oh, like here's some problem. I don't have something off the top of my head." But backend is like, "Oh yeah, we solved that like two years ago." And so it's yeah. like, "Oh yeah, these are not new ideas. They're just applying old ideas in a new place." Yeah, and it's like this. Um, well, the reason why we do this podcast too, like the whole Jamstack, it's it's just it is another term for front end, but it's like another term of a more mature front end where. A lot of the processing power and the things that you were doing infrastructure-wise on the back end is now being shifted to the front end. Uh, I just spent uh, a couple, I guess a, a whole week on building a release generator where I built a serverless webhook to basically watch my GitHub repo. And when whenever a release is cut, it sends a tweet and then it also sends a blog post based on the same release. So whether or not you're following the repo or you just follow the blog based on whatever has been shipped, like this is just a drop-in replacement for some automation that I would normally have to send to like my APIs, I can now just have live as part of like my front end code for a simple and like the code itself lives on the blog itself, like the actual marketing blog site for the documentation. And it's kind of amazing all the work that I've done that I don't I don't need to like attach this to the actual project itself. And I think more and more we're finding as we have things like Redux was kind of like a Redux. I actually did Ember data before that, but it's having the idea of having data on your front end. And having that sort of like data layer for your front end has also been like a bit of a shift. I know it was a couple years ago that we this happened, but it was kind of interesting to watch that transition happen. When now we no longer have the same problems that we had about what data are we getting from the API. I don't need to go back to my backend developer and say, "Hey, can you do like reserialize this data so it comes out this way?" I can just get all the data, add some Redux actions, and then I can present the data in the way I want. And I think on, on top of that, GraphQL is even better example of that. Is that now I just get all the data. And I can do all the querying based on what I need. So it's been an interesting transition to watch. Absolutely, I think GraphQL is one of the the most interesting developments in in recent years around that to actually solve the problems that product developers have. I even know that for some companies, their workflow consists of the product developer writing the actual query. And even if it doesn't exist yet, and propping it up on the server, yeah, and sending some mock data, and then suddenly you have a well-typed contract for what you're going to do between the front and the back end. And I think that's just like the holy grail of like being able to to design and build products easily. Yeah, I can't remember if I saw a talk on that, but like two-step development in GraphQL, 
it was either someone told me about it and they were submitting it, or I actually did see a talk about it. I can't remember what it is, but the idea of literally having the front end no longer being blocked by the back end and this proceed as normal. Uh, so when you have like kickoff meetings, and we've been doing this as well at, at Netlify, like you have kickoff meetings with design mocks, and no one is blocked waiting for APIs to be generated or front end to be generated to see how it works. Everybody's working at the same speed. Or faster or slower doesn't really matter, but no one's blocked on each other. So then, if the front end has their mocks up and it works based on the design templates, that's good. If the API is already done, the API is done, and uh, no one's sitting around waiting for the next thing to do. And I think, uh, personally, as a developer, like I spent some time where I spent at least three or four days waiting for infrastructure or backend to to finish what they need to do or stop putting out fires over here and there to then ship me some code. Nowadays, I can just ship code and then move on to my next thing, and they can ship code and move on to the next thing. As far as GraphQL, like internally, how are you guys seeing GraphQL performance-wise, integration-wise? Are you guys happy you made the move? Yeah, I think it solves a lot of things that we had problems with. One was that it was really unclear what APIs could provide, and even though we have a schema language for our APIs, it wasn't exposed in a way that you could say, okay, what are all the possible things that could happen here? Um, beyond that, because we have so many types, uh, we knew that you could theoretically traverse between the different types. But in REST, that's not super straightforward. We had the concept of traversing one level deep, but with GraphQL, you can kind of nest infinitely, and it's a lot more expressive in terms of how the relationships, like for example, going from a course to an instructor to the instructor's profile to the profile link, and that's a very easy construct to make. But in REST, that might be three or four different calls, right? But for a product now, it's just a very simple one query that you make. In terms of integration, we took a pretty novel approach to this, which was we had all of these REST APIs that aren't necessarily air quotes GraphQL like conventions, like in terms of um, writing queries that make sense for your product, but they serve the serve the purpose of exposing data. And so what we did is that we actually used that schema, the schema that we were already using for our backends, and auto generated. GraphQL schemas from that. And so once we figured that out, we basically were able to bolt on GraphQL support for all of our APIs at Coursera. Rather than having to do that one piecemeal and having to handwrite a lot of resolvers, it just does it automatically. Yeah. And that made the adoption of GraphQL a lot faster and a lot easier to, to figure out. And I think the one thing that backend developers who you know still don't have to make anything specific, they just write the same kind of REST APIs that they were doing before. They just have to figure out how to link between things, how to traverse between different resources. And that's all been really great just because we have to support our REST endpoints for our old applications, for our mobile applications. We don't intend to um, deprecate the REST API just yet. Yeah. I think that's smart too because I think uh, I think everybody's really bullish on GraphQL, but I think there's a lot of things that haven't been solved yet. And there's a lot of ideas that are out there that are just in spec review. Some have been released like live queries and stuff like that. But it, it's interesting to see the GraphQL community being very reserved in their approach. Like I'm still waiting for some of these larger companies like Coursera and Pinterest and Airbnb to start talking about performance and how they solve this and this. Cause like I would love to solve those, but sometimes I have to just ship code. So I would love to I would love to see what happens by the next GraphQL summit next year to then start picking apart some of these blog posts. I think um I forget his last name. He was just on the GraphQL radio, but Jason Singrolf. I'm going to just butcher his last name, but I had literally had dinner with him during GraphQL Summit. And his approach with um, the Gramps framework mm-hmm. and how to integrate things was like really eye opening. It was probably the most detailed explanation of GraphQL in a company. 
And uh, I've really, really appreciated that. And uh, I, I'm looking forward to more examples and stuff like that so I can start solving problems but also don't have to, I can source the community just as you were saying with uh, what you guys are doing internally in Coursera because Netlify, we're just uh, shy of 30 people and uh, so we, we don't have tons of bandwidth to go off on little tangents. I tend to go on tangents so yeah. I, I did do a lot of GraphQL but yeah, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, I think the community and the ecosystem has has done a really great job of providing the tools and and things. And GraphQL itself, by the nature of having a spec and having a schema, allows for a lot of there's constraints, but it means that you can be really you can kind of go wild within those constraints, which is really nice. Um, and so I've, we've seen a lot of development in both the developer tooling ecosystem as well as the runtime analysis. Apollo just released their Apollo engine; that's really yeah. interesting. There's a lot of hosted solutions out there, GraphQL, uh, AWS, AppSync. So, have you tried AppSync yet? Uh, so we poked at it um, at Corsair. We're, you know, we're kind of locked into the AWS cloud thing. So, we, you know, that seemed like a pretty good solution for us. And um, we poked at that for some context. We have our own homegrown, uh, basically wrapper around Sangria, uh, a, a Scala service that deals with our GraphQL and, and stitching our schemas together. And so we wanted to find something that maybe is a little less, uh, something that we don't have to worry about as much. And AppSync uh, looked like it was really, really simple. We basically can click and, and modify some configuration and allow um, one, you upload your schema that you create in the schema definition language. And then you define resolvers that might be AWS Lambda functions. Then uh, they have a particular programming language called, it's like VTL or something. So you can do some basic manipulation of stuff in their resolvers. And then you can have those resolvers hit DynamoDB. So you know, to your point about like having the ability to do a lot of work without having to wait for backend and waiting for infra, you can just send everything to basically AWS Cloud and of course, you have to pay for it, but you can have that entire GraphQL to storage and back again um, all in AWS. Cool. I have a long list of things I need to try out. I'll just add it right on the bottom. <laughs> Line number like 35. One day I'll get through, through that whole list. John, I really appreciate you coming in and talking about Coursera and what you guys do as far as infrastructure goes for front end. But I'm going to transition us to picks. So these are picks that are. Things that get you going, things that you're jamming on, they can be programming related, they can be food related, they can be not related, which sometimes I do have some unrelated picks. And uh, if you don't mind, I'll go first and I'll let you go last as our guest. Sounds and good. so I, my first pick is going to be the North Pole Show. Uh, I actually backed a Kickstarter last summer and it was a, a Kickstarter for a YouTube web series. It was like a 10, uh, actually, it was six episodes. And they basically talked about North Oakland. And how gentrification is happening, hmm. and uh, it's actually it's really really funny. Uh, I think that the first episode's a little slow. Uh, I think that was like their pilot that they had to put up on Kickstarter. The rest of them are actually really funny and, and good. Uh, I've mentioned it too as well because they filmed right in my neighborhood, hmm. so most of the shots are like right outside my house. I won't tell you where I live, but it's pretty close to where those shots are. Mm-hmm. And then the house they hang out in is also right down the street from me. Yeah. So I'm not sure who lives in the neighborhood or how they got all those uh, all those spots and stuff like that. But actually, I saw them filming while they were like while this is happening, and then I heard about the Kickstarter, so I backed it, and I was like, oh, cool, I'll just I'll back this thing since they're ruining my neighborhood. Just kidding, they're not ruining the neighborhood, but <laughs> it's a good web series. It's a, it talks about a very sensitive subject for at least uh, Oaklandites. And uh, so I definitely recommend check out the North Pole show. And uh, as far as that, another more technology basic uh, pick is going to be Netlify functions. 
It's a, a new feature that we actually just put out in alpha. Uh, by the time the podcast comes out, we'll probably put it as a beta and we'll open it up for everybody to use. Uh, but it's a way to do serverless-based functions within the context of Netlify apps. So you can deploy a static site or a Jamstack site, rather, and uh, also have functions run. So you can do a lot of really creative things that hopefully by then, by the time podcast house, I'll have some blog posts and examples to share. But that example about the release note generator is a Netlify function that watches GitHub repos and then ships blog posts onto your site. John, do you have any picks? First of all, those picks sound really great. I want, I, I really want that release generator. I've been working on some open source stuff, and I really need that like automatic tweet release thing. So I'll yeah. uh, keep my eyes out for the Net, Netlify uh, function. Cool. Um, I have a, I have a couple picks. Um, one is from a technology standpoint, which is really interesting. It's uh, it's the Apollo Link State uh, library uh, yeah, yeah. that Pe- Peggy Races has been um, pushing and, and working on. And I've talked with them about this a lot, but I really like the idea of being able to resolve client-side uh, data using GraphQL. Um, and what that sort of does is that one is that you might not need Redux anymore, which is great. At the very least, you may not need to interface with it the same way. You can use GraphQL for, as your API for literally everything you need. Um, everything's well typed. It's all available the same way, no matter whether it's on a server or a local piece of data. That's really awesome. The second thing is um, at, at Coursera, we just released, I think two weeks ago, was uh, the Google IT Cert. And it's a certificate program that, uh, again, is hosted by Google. And uh, they made all the content and uh, they intend to hire folks out of this. Uh, this is the actual uh, coursework that they use to train their employees. So it means that you don't need a degree to, to work, certainly, in the, on their IT team. We have a bunch of other hiring companies that are going through that process as well. And I don't know, for me, it was. I've worked at Coursera for four years now, and I think that this is like one of those moments where I'm just like, this is really cool. I'm like really proud to to see people taking that coursework and and, and getting these high paying jobs. I would imagine, yeah, especially at a place like Google. Yeah, that's exciting. I, I definitely have some people uh, who are currently thinking about college or going back to school. I might even point them towards that Coursera course to kind of see if that works out for them before. Uh, paying for a full college tuition. Awesome. I, I'm actually really happy you mentioned that. I'm also really glad again that you came in and uh, talking about the jam and what you guys are doing on the front end infrastructure. John, hopefully have a good ride home. Stay safe. And listeners, keep spreading the jam. That's all the time we have for today. If you're interested in being a guest on the show or if you'd like to suggest a topic, find us on Twitter at Jamstack Radio. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out their library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders. 